Hello? Can you still hear me? Hi, everyone. This is MC Owens. If you'd like to support the Lotus Underground and these Dharma transmissions, please consider becoming a Patreon member. You can go to patreon.com backslash mcowens or follow the links at lotusunderground.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the... This is another MC Owens transmission. Hello? And welcome back to the Lotus Underground. This is MC Owens, and this is going to be part eight of my series on the Noble Eightfold Path. And today I will be talking about Sama Samadhi, otherwise known as uh, Right Samadhi or Right Concentration. Um, before I go ahead and get into the Dharma talk, though, I just want to take a few moments to make a few announcements. Uh, today is December 20th, 2021, and as we come to the end of the year, I just wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who's been listening to these Dharma talks and uh, maybe supporting me or being a Patreon member. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, how much your contributions and just your listening supports me, supports this podcast, um, and so I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting. Um, I have a lot of um, new things coming up uh, next year for the Lotus Underground, as well as the Lotus Underground School of Buddhism, uh, which is a project I've been working on. Um, and that's a way of tying together all of my different teaching activities, um, everything from my Sunday night Dharma Doors class, which I teach through the San Francisco Dharma Collective, to the classes I offer through my own School of Buddhism, the Lotus Underground School of Buddhism, as well as uh, my one-on-ones, uh, doing uh, group classes, individual classes. Um, all of that I plan to make more available next year. And so if you haven't been to lotusunderground.com, my website, uh, please do check it out, see what's going on there. But mainly make sure you're on my mailing list that I've been putting together so that come next year, you can find out about all the different things I'm doing. Okay, um, so let's get back to the Dharma. Um, so this is the last step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And the way that I've been teaching the Eightfold Path, the way I've been presenting this series, is that you can approach the Noble Eightfold Path as an actual path, meaning one step at a time. And that's the way I've been teaching this, with the idea that beginning with right view, right, samadrishti, this idea of having the, the right view of this world. And I made a very kind of, you know, strong statement, strong case for the idea that if one wasn't established in the right view, then the second step on the path, setting the right intention, what that intention is will be different depending on what your worldview is or what your drishti is. And so I'm teaching the Noble Eightfold Path as a process wherein one works on one step so as to be able to generate or establish the second step or the next step, and then the following step, and the following step. And so now we've come to the end of the road, so to speak. And so you could, in a way, see the Eightfold Path as 
all leading towards the establishment of this right samadhi. So samadhi is a very tricky term. It's a very, um, you know, it's a Sanskrit term, Pali term. It's uh, very related to meditation, but we don't really have a translation into English, or I should say there's a variety of translations into English. Concentration is the general translation of samadhi. And while the, while the word concentration does very much pertain to the, what the word samadhi means, there's a sense in English in which to concentrate has to do with maybe the mind or it has to do with attention. And in particular, it's a kind of a, a hard focus, or at least that's how I would use the word concentration in English. Or even if it's just talking about something being very concentrated, like a, well, I don't know, like an orange juice that's from concentrate. It's like very strong, very potent. And I actually think that's not the exact right connotations to be um, sort of providing for samadhi. So the basic idea, you know me, I always like to start with the etymology or what the word actually means. And so the word samadhi is two parts, sama, and the second part, di, which is actually, as far as I understand it, related to the root word dar or der, which means to hold, which it's actually the root of the word dharma um, or dharana, if you're familiar with that term of holding. So that's the second part of it, to hold, dar, in this case, di. Samadar, samada or samadi, all the kind of the same, uh, very, basically conjugations of the same word. That word means to hold as the same. And so the, the prefix sama in Sanskrit is related to the English word same. And it kind of means it speaks of similarity or just the sameness. And so samadhi could be sort of literally translated as to hold as the same. And in a sense, that is what the word generally means. But again, it has so many different translations. Um, in, in, er, in the early study of Buddhism and Hinduism, and I mean the early Western study of these things, um, sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s, when um, English writers first started writing about samadhi, there was a lot of different ways to understand this. There was a very kind of famous um, series of, of early books by Freud, Jung, and the kind of these early psychologists slash anthropologists. And they would speak about samadhi as this kind of, quote, oceanic feeling or an oceanic experience. And kind of a hallmark or a defining characteristic of a samadhi is a sense of the, the dissolution of the self or a, a sense of the, the dissolving of the ego. Nowadays, people talk about ego death, or the experience of ego death or something like that, 
All of that sort of related to this idea of samadhi. But of course, what we're going to be talking about this, this morning, for me, is this idea of the right samadhi. Again, that implies that there's a wrong samadhi, that there's a wrong way. And once again, I just want to make clear the language of right and wrong. It's actually not really that appropriate because when we talk about the right samadhi, it's not so much that there is a wrong way. It's that the type of samadhi that the, the Buddha teaches is the type of samadhi that is conducive to bodhi. It's conducive to awakening. It leads to awakening. And so what the term right, sama or samyak, what that term really implies is that it is, it's the right way if you're interested in enlightenment. It's conducive to that. And so I just want to make that clear that it's not like right or wrong. It's about whether it leads to and is conducive to awakening or whether it's a samadhi, but it's not necessarily going to lead to awakening. So that's kind of that idea. Um, again, this idea of samadhi is a pre-Buddhist idea. It's a very um, uh, common part of yoga, very common part of asamkhya yoga, ashtanga yoga, all kinds of different systems of meditation or yoga coming out of India. Samadhi is sort of the name of the game. Um, in many traditions, many yoga and med meditation traditions, Samadhi is equivalent to moksha or vimoksha, liberation, like the, the end goal, actual release. Um, and so in some traditions, Samadhi is the goal. I wouldn't say it's the goal of Buddhism in this sense, but it's certainly kind of the end of the Noble Eightfold Path. And so in order to move out of just the etymology and moving out of just the general traditions, let's return to the, it's that little sutta that I've been using as kind of my baseline definitions for all steps on the Eightfold Path. And so I'm referring to the analysis of the Eightfold Path which is a tiny little sutra or sutta that's from the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha. Um, this is from the section on the Marga, on the, the path, the Noble Eightfold Path. It's sutra number, so it's section 45 of the Samyutta Nikaya, sutta number eight, called the analysis. And I've been reading the different sections from this sutta as it pertains to the different steps on the path. And I like this sutta because it gives the, the most clear, concise definition of each of the steps on the path, in particular, what it means by right. So let's hear what the Buddha has to say from this sutra regarding right samadhi in the Buddhist tradition. And what bhikkhus is Sama Samadhi, right concentration or right Samadhi. Here, one secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thought and examination with pity, rapture, and 
Sukha, bliss, born of seclusion. With the subsiding of thought and examination, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal confidence and unification of mind, is without thought and examination, and has pitti and sukha, rapture and bliss, born of samadhi, born of concentration. With the fading away, as well, of the pity, of the rapture, one dwells equanimous and mindful and clearly comprehending. One experiences sukha, bliss, with the body. One enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one is equanimous and mindful, the one who dwells happily. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, sukha and dukkha, and with the previous passing away of piti and sukha, rapture and bliss, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither painful nor pleasant, and includes the purification of mindfulness by upeksha, equanimity. This is called sama samadhi, right concentration, or right samadhi. Okay, so that's the brief section from that sutta on defining right samadhi, right concentration. And so it is very, very kind of clearly stated that what constitutes right samadhi are the four jhanic states. So the four jhanas, that's in the Pali language, or dhyana, that's the Sanskrit language. So those four meditative states, which are described here kind of in terms of rapture and bliss, and then the ultimate subsiding of that rapture and bliss to lead to the state of upeksha, equanimity, the fourth jhana. So that's how the Buddha defines samadhi in this sutta. And it's important to kind of see the relationship between the seventh step on the Noble Eightfold Path and then this eighth step. And what I mean is, is that last, uh, the last entry of this series, I talked about samasati, the samyakshmrti in Sanskrit, right mindfulness. And so this was about establishing sati or shmrti, this state of mindfulness. And the sutta was very clear then that the way to do that is through the four foundations of mindfulness, which is mindfully attending to the body, bodily sensations, mind states called citta, and then finally dharmas, these teachings or truths or principles of Buddhism. So by mindfully attending in sequence to those four foundations of mindfulness, one then can establish or be established in a dhyanic state in one of the in the first of those dhyanas or jhanas. And so in this sense, 
that sutta is defining samadhi as kind of synonymous with the dhyana state in that way. Now, I will add here, even though it's not part of this sutta, or I'm actually going to read another tiny sutta on my, or on concentration or samadhi, but what neither of those suttas mention, but it's mentioned in other Buddhist texts, other suttas, so I want to let you know that you will often hear the Buddha or hear Buddhist texts equate samadhi with what are actually called the four formless jhanas. So the four jhanas that I just read about, the first one that's all about rapture and bliss, born of seclusion, by the way, and then the second jhana, also kind of blissful, but not born of seclusion, actually born of the concentration, born of the samadhi, and then finally, just sort of what the what the noble ones say is one who abides happily, abides in equanimity. That idea of abiding peacefully is the third jhana. And then we finally reach the fourth jhana of form, which is described as being neither pleasant nor painful in between those two in terms of equanimity. Now, again, those are the four dhyanas that are called the four rupa dhyanas or rupa jhanas, the, the jhanas or the meditations of form. And in some texts, it is only the four formless jhanas that are considered technically a samadhi. So I kind of leave it up to you to, you know, uh, research this further and see what you find regarding the exact definition of samadhi. But the four formless samadhis, the first is akasha, or space. The second is vijnana, or consciousness. The third is akimkanya, which is absolute nothingness. <laughs> and then the fourth is a state of neither perception nor non-perception. Naiva samya, nisamya. So no samya, no perception, but no not perceiving. So that's the fourth formless uh, jhana. And those are called formless because beginning with space, the idea of akasha or space is that it has no discernible characteristics. It doesn't look like anything. It doesn't smell like anything. It doesn't make any sounds. So it has no discernibility and that's what they call formless. And so sort of be in a state of complete sensory deprivation in that way to where the only object, which you can't even call it an object, but the only thing, again, can't even call it a thing, but the only Dharma, barely call it a Dharma, that is being attended to is this concept of space. And so it's called formless it's a formless concentration, a formless samadhi, because there's actually nothing being entertained by the mind, except for this very vacuous sense of space. And then from that, one transitions into this the second formless samadhi or the second formless jhana, which is just consciousness. That very, very consciousness that would otherwise be thinking about things, but is no longer thinking about things because it is only attending to space, 
Well, when even the very concept of space is abandoned, there's a sense in which the consciousness or the mind is just there alone now. Also formless, nothing discernible, but a kind of residual hum of thinking, a residual hum of mind, which then eventually subsides into this third formless jhana, nothingness. Absolute, total nothingness. Not even the concept of space, not even any self-reflexive sense of mind. So it's kind of actually totally still. And that state of being in a total state of stillness of nothingness can then lead to a kind of reconditioning or deconditioning of the mind itself to, to put it in a state outside of the paradigm of perceiving and not perceiving. So this is where they call it the state of neither perception nor non-perception, sort of a non-dual state. And that's where we get back to that idea of a samadhi sort of being characterized by a sense of non-duality, dissolution of the self, death of the ego, or something along those lines. So that's the basic kind of trajectory of samadhi, that it's, you know, you could call it a very deep meditative state and kind of, you know, and you, you are meant to really be putting together the practice of sati, so that focused attending to the breath, or to some object as the starting point of sati, working your way through the four foundations of mindfulness to lead to these really, really deep states of meditation that, that if they're done sort of in their traditional way, lead to this point of stillness in which the mind is basically not functioning. It has in a, in a way kind of gone offline, if you will. And one of the things about that idea, the idea of not thinking, the idea of not doing anything or thinking about anything and actually just being in a state of quiet stillness, there's a way in which to the thinking mind that cannot, that can seem not very pleasing. That in, in many ways, the thinking mind would associate that state with being dead. And so the thinking mind is often a little avoid. It avoids that idea. It avoids, uh, and certainly doesn't necessarily find desirable the idea of going into a state of not thinking. So I want to say a few words about that idea of the benefits or why this idea of right samadhi that sounds like kind of being blacked out for a while, and then you come to. Well, the idea is, is that, you know, there's, like I mentioned, there's a lot of different types of samadhi, a lot of different traditions regarding samadhi. And, you know, if I wanted to say it very clearly, I would suggest that not all traditions of samadhi would suggest moving beyond the bliss and going towards this state of neither pleasant nor painful, this state of upeksha. Some traditions are, are aiming for that bliss. They too 
find the experience of being embodied, find the experience of being in the world frustrating, stressful, anxiety-producing, dukkha. And so many meditation traditions that promote establishing samadhi or getting into a samadhi state they're seemingly a little more interested in those early stages of samadhi that are very blissful with the idea that you could actually mentally drift into that blissful state forever. What kind of makes the Buddhist idea of right samadhi, the idea of right, is that it goes beyond that bliss to this sort of equanimous state of upeksha. And that sort of, again, is what makes this the Buddhist version of samadhi, versus any other kind of version in that way. And the idea of going into one of those uh, various formless samadhis, as I understand it and have experienced it, it's not unlike sleep. <laughs> the idea being that there's another time when we go into a state that is akin to being blacked out, that's akin to having no uh, mental activity whatsoever. And that's the period after we fall asleep, but before we start dreaming. Periods of very, very deep sleep in which you are not, <laughs> period. You're not thinking, you're not experiencing, you are actually just resting. And the idea about that is, is that we need to do that. We need to sleep and we also really need those periods of deep, mindless sleep. And the idea about it is, is that, you know, if you've gone a day or two or more without sleeping, you know how it feels. You start to get irritable, your body aches, you're cranky, you're short-tempered, your whole kind of... Um, being in a sense changes when you haven't gotten enough sleep but then if you get a good night's sleep you wake up feeling refreshed you wake up feeling you know healthier and all of that and i would suggest that samadhi these very deep states of meditation are very similar the benefit is actually the stillness and then what also happens is that the real benefit is felt when you come out of a samadhi and you've given your mind time to rest, time to heal. Primarily, we're talking about periods of time in which the mind is not cycling and therefore reconditioning. They're, speaking of samskara, the idea is, is that when the mind is in a still state, it's not reinforcing habitual habits of mind in that way, what they call samskaras. And so it allows our samskara, the habits of the mind, it allows those habits to, to dissipate. And by doing that, again, the idea is you come out of one of these deep samadhis feeling refreshed, feeling healed, feeling all of those things. And here's the thing, just like sleep, if you don't get enough of it, or if you haven't had a good night's sleep, you, in a way, you suffer. You, your body suffers, your mind suffers, those around you potentially suffer. 
And so the idea is similar with samadhi, which is that many of us have never been in a samadhi. And so many of us are irritable, short-tempered, and, and cranky, and all of those things. But because we actually haven't experienced this stillness, and in fact, having not experienced it, again, your mind might be saying, well, don't go anywhere near meditation because that would be death or that would be boring or that would be whatever, non-productive. And so I just kind of wanted to impart a certain sense of the value of these deeper meditative states um, and that even though you're not doing anything, there may be a tremendous value in not doing anything for a moment. So I wanted to say that, but then also kind of reinforce this idea that the Buddhist idea of samadhi doesn't end at the bliss and the rapture. It kind of goes beyond that to really try to achieve this state of equanimity or upeksha as the goal. All right, so that's just about it for my final remarks on the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. I am going to read another tiny sutta, and I wanted to read this sutta. It, it just goes a little bit further than the analysis sutra that I read from a moment ago. And this is a sutra from the Anguttara Nikaya, so the enumerated or numerical discourses of the Buddha. This is the, the, a very big section of the Pali Canon, wherein all of the suttas of this collection are divided into the, the way that the teachings are given, meaning they are divided into teachings given in threes, fours, fives, sixes, sevens, eights, all the way up, I think, to ten. And this is from the section on the book of fives. So these are teachings that the Buddha gave in fives. And it's specifically a sutta about um, what is called the five-factored sama samadhi. So the five-factored right concentration. Um, and this seems to be the go-to sutta for many people regarding samasamadhi, um, right samadhi. So I wanted to, to, to read that sutra. Again, it's just a follow-up with a little bit more detail than the analysis sutra. But this is also part of a section of the Anguttara Nikaya that has a few different little suttas about samadhi. And I just wanted to read to you one line quickly before I read the whole other sutra. There's one line from a sutra that's just called Samadhi. It's like the Samadhi Sutta. It's very, very small. It's number 27 in section 5 of the Anguttara, if you're curious. And the only line that I wanted to read was this. In speaking about the Buddhist form of samadhi, the Buddha says, This samadhi is peaceful and sublime, gained by full tranquilization and attained to unification. It is not reined in and checked by forcefully suppressing the body. 
Okay, so I think that that's a very important point to make regarding Buddhist meditation, that these states, the Buddhist approach to these states is in a very non, I would say, non-aggressive, non-stoic, you know, non-persevering um, sense. What it says here, it's these states are not developed by reining in and checking by forcefully checking the body in that way. These concentrations are peaceful and sublime. And so I just would really like to emphasize that idea that it, it basically like if you're if you're not enjoying it, you're might you might be doing it wrong, is what, what I mean to say in that sense. So I just wanted to read that line because again, I think it really reinforces the unique Buddhist approach to these um, these types of meditations. And yeah, now I'm gonna go ahead and just to finish this Dharma talk off. And to conclude our series on the Eightfold Path, I'm going to read from the uh, Samadanga Sutta, which is to say the, the right five-factored Samadhi Sutta. This is the Samadanga Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Enumerated Discourses of the Buddha, Section 5, Sutta number 28. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Shravasti in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindika's park. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus! I will teach you the development of noble five-factored right samadhi. Listen and attend closely. I will speak. Yes, Bhagavan, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. And what bhikkhus is the development of noble five-factored right samadhi? Here, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which consists of priti, rapture, and sukha, Bliss, born of seclusion, accompanied by thought and examination. One makes the pitti and sukha, born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body, so that there is no part of the body that is not pervaded by this pitti and sukha, born of seclusion. Just as a skillful bath person or a bath person's apprentice might heap bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water would knead it until the moisture wets the ball of bath powder, soaks it and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too, one who makes the Pritti and sukha, born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body, so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by this pitti and sukha, born of seclusion. This is the first development of noble five-factored right samadhi. Again, with the subsiding of thought and examination, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal placidity and unification of mind, 
and consists of pritti and sukha, born of concentration, without thought and examination. One makes the pitti and sukha born of concentration, drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body, so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the pitti and sukha born of concentration. Just as there might be a lake whose waters welled up from below, with no inflow from east, west, north, or south, and the lake would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool font of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the entire lake that is not pervaded by the cool water. So too, one who makes the Pitti and Sukha, born of concentration, drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body, so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the Pitti and Sukha, born of concentration. This is the second development of noble five-factored right samadhi. Again, with the fading away as well of Pitti, rapture. Ebiku dwells equanimous and mindful, clearly comprehending. One experiences sukha, bliss, with the body. One enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one is equanimous, mindful, the one who dwells happily. One makes the happiness divested of rapturous pity drench and steep fill and pervade their entire body so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the sukha divested of pity. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water might thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it, and cool water would drench, steep, fill, and pervade them to their tips and to their roots, so that there would be no part of those lotuses that would not be pervaded by the cool water. So too, one who makes the happiness divested of pity or rapture drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body, so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the happiness divested of pity. This is the third development of noble five-factored right samadhi. Again, with the abandoning of sukha and dukkha, pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of pritti, sukha, and dejection, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, neither painful nor pleasant, which has purification of mindfulness by upeksha, equanimity. One sits pervading the body with a pure, bright mind, 
so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the pure, bright mind. Just as someone might be sitting, covered from the head down with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the white cloth, so too, one who sits pervading the body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of the entire body that is not pervaded by the pure, bright mind. This is the fourth development of noble five-factored right samadhi. Again, one who has grasped well the object of reviewing, attended to it well, sustained it well, and penetrated it well with wisdom, just as one person might look upon another, as one standing might look upon one sitting down, or one sitting down might look upon one lying down, so too one who has grasped well the object of reviewing, attended to it well, sustained it well, and penetrated it well with wisdom. This is the fifth development of noble five-factored right samadhi. When bhikkhus Noble five-factored right samadhi has been developed and cultivated in this way. Then, there being a suitable basis, one is capable and of realizing any state realizable by direct knowledge towards which they might incline the mind. Suppose a water jug full of water has been set out on a stand the jug being full of water right up to the brim so that crows could drink from it. If a strong man would tip it in any direction, would water come out? The bhikkhus replied, Yes, Bhagavan. So too, bhikkhus. When noble five-factored right samadhi has been developed and cultivated in this way, then, there being a suitable basis, one is capable of realizing any state realizable by direct knowledge toward which one might incline the mind. Suppose on level ground there was a four-sided pond, contained by an embankment, full of water right up to the brim so that crows could drink from it. If a strong man were to remove the embankment on any side, would water come out? The bhikkhus replied, Yes, Bhagavan. So too, bhikkhus, when noble five-factored right samadhi has been developed and cultivated in this way, then there being a suitable basis, one is capable of realizing any state realizable by direct knowledge towards which one might incline the mind. Suppose on even ground at a crossroads a chariot was standing harnessed to thoroughbreds, and with a goad ready at hand, so that a skillful trainer, the charioteer, could mount it, and taking the reins in the left hand and the goad in the right, might drive out and return wherever and whenever they like. So too, bhikkhus, when noble five-factored right samadhi has been developed and cultivated in this way, then, there being a suitable basis, one is capable of realizing any state realizable, by direct knowledge, towards which one might incline the mind. If one wishes, may I wield the various kinds of psychic powers, having been one 
may I become many. Having been many, may I become one. May I appear and vanish. May I go unhindered through a wall, through a rampart, through a mountain, as though through space. May I dive in and out of the earth as though it were water. May I walk on water without sinking as though it were earth. Seated cross-legged, may I travel in space like a bird. With my hand, may I touch and stroke the moon and sun so powerful and mighty as they are. May I exercise mastery with the body as far as the Brahma world. One is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If one wishes, may I with the divine ear, which is purified and surpasses the human ear, hear both kinds of sounds, the divine and human, those that are far as well as those near, one is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If one wishes, may I understand the minds of other beings and persons, having encompassed them with my own mind, may I understand a mind with greed as a mind with greed, and a mind without greed as a mind without greed, a mind with anger as a mind with anger, and a mind without anger as a mind without anger, a mind with delusion as a mind with delusion, and a mind without delusion as a mind without delusion, a contracted mind as a contracted mind, a distracted mind as a distracted mind, an exalted mind as an exalted mind, and an unexalted mind as an unexalted mind, a surpassable mind as surpassable, an unsurpassable mind as unsurpassable, a concentrated mind as concentrated, and an unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated, a liberated mind as liberated, and an unliberated mind as unliberated. One is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If one wishes, may I recollect my manifold previous lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty births, thirty births, forty births, fifty births, a hundred births, a thousand births, a hundred thousand births, many culpas of world dissolution, many culpas of world evolution, many culpas of world dissolution and world evolution thus. There I was so named, of such and such a clan, with such and such an appearance. That was my food, such was my experience of pleasure and pain, such was my lifespan. Passing away from there, I was reborn elsewhere. And there too, I was so named, of such and such a clan, with such and such an appearance, with such as my food, and such as my experience of pleasure and pain, such my lifespan. Passing away from there, I was reborn again and again. May I thus recollect my manifold past lives with their aspects and details. One is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If one wishes, may I with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, see beings passing away and being reborn, inferior, superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and understand how beings fare in accordance with their karmic results. Thus thinking, 
these beings who engaged in misconduct of body, speech, and mind, who reviled the noble ones, held wrong views, and undertook karma based on wrong views, with the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in miserable planes, in a bad destination, in the lower worlds, or in hell. But these beings who engaged in good conduct of body, speech, and mind, who did not revile the noble ones, who held the right view, and undertook karma based upon right view, upon the breakup of the body after death, have been reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Thus with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, may I see beings passing away and being reborn, inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and understand how beings fare in accordance with their karma. One is capable of realizing this, there being a suitable basis. And if one wishes, may I, with the destruction of the taints in this very life, realize for myself with direct knowledge the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, may I dwell in it. One is capable of realizing this, there being a suitable basis.